Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are the Minimalists. Oh, what a special day it is today. We've got Malabama in the studio. Hi, everybody. And we've got the birthday boy himself, T.K. Coleman, is here. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Oh, it's too soon, T.K. That's the best birthday gift you can give to me. We've got a very special guest here as well today. We're going to be talking to Dr. Jerry Tennant here in a moment. We've got the rest of our team in the studio as well. We've got Jordan and Sean and Sean and Danny and Emma and Jess. They're floating around us right now. They're either joining us on the live stream. Shout out to our patrons, by the way, on the live stream. Thank you for your support. Your support. Oh, yeah. If you are a private podcast subscriber, you keep our podcast 100% advertisement free because say it with me, y'all. <laughs> Advertisement suck. What a birthday gift it is to have TK Coleman in the studio. Ah, the B21 again, TK. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Not a single gray he, hair on this head. Yeah, I think he finally turned 30, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you or anyone you know is suffering from a chronic illness, this episode is for you. I would encourage you to share it widely to anyone who is suffering in any way with some sort of disease, chronic illness, etc. But please note, none of this is considered medical advice from us. Do your own research here. Of course, we don't give any advice on the podcast mm. whatsoever. But if uh, you're looking at this episode for advice, just know this is more of an on-ramp onto doing more of your own research and better understanding the root of chronic illness. Heck yeah. I said we start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know if you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Rand. This is Rand from Houston, Texas. I know that there are many causes of chronic illness, for example, losing the genetic lottery. However, there are many chronic lifestyle illnesses, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. Do you think that there will ever be a time when medicine will focus on prevention instead of just treating the symptoms? Joining us by phone to help answer this question is Dr. Jerry Tennant, MD. He wrote this book. I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version of the podcast. This book is called Healing is Voltage. And I, the reason I wanted to have Dr. Tennant on the podcast, I read this book when I was doing something called PEMF therapy. And this book was in the waiting room. And I immediately picked it up and started going through it. And I realized oh, I know a lot, but there's so much I don't know about my own chronic illness that I've been dealing with the last four years. And this really helped put it in perspective for me. Dr. Tennant, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. You know, I want to address Rand's question head on, and then we'll dive a bit into your book as well. Now, we all know that a, a thimble of prevention is more effective than a truckload of treatment. Mm. And so the best way to deal with any sort of chronic illness is to prevent it before it happens. 
And I think you talk about that quite a bit in your book. But then also, when someone is suffering from some sort of chronic illness, whether it's an autoimmune disease or cancer or something else that is plaguing their life, well, they, um, their whole life tends to, to change. And what Rand is, is talking about here is a paradigm shift. And you talk about this paradigm shift in your book as well. I was hoping maybe you could talk to Rand about when do we make this shift? Because medicine is really great at treating acute illnesses. If I sprain my ankle or break my leg, great. I can go to the hospital. I can get a cast. It can really help me. But beyond that, we're, we're at a loss for healing today. In fact, it seems that we are sicker than ever. Yeah, so Rand, I appreciate your uh, question and uh, wish that we had uh, the rest of the week to answer it uh, <laughs> because there are um, many um, misconceptions that have been taught to physicians and to the public for many years. And uh, your question included uh, several of those. And so <clears throat> I'm going to with uh, try to keep my answer as short as possible, but still give you some information, if I may. Yes, please. First of all, <clears throat> the idea that you uh, got a, a shaft on the genetic lottery is primarily incorrect. Mm. So uh, the, the idea that our genes are in control of everything um, actually was uh, proven back, uh, to be incorrect back in the 1950s. <clears throat> a chap got a Nobel Prize for showing that our genes uh, that we get from our parents uh, change. Uh, and they change not only according to, um, to our environment, but according to our diet. Mm. Um, and so uh, we, we do have uh, the genes our parents gave us, but if you look at genes from twins, say, when they're born, and then you look at them again, say, when they're 20, they're the same when they're born, they're different when they're 20. Mm. So we're not stuck with the, with the uh, genetic programming that our parents uh, passed on to us, uh, with perhaps the exception of uh, genetic emotions, which is a whole other subject unto itself, uh, <clears throat> which I wish we had time to discuss. But let me move on. So... Um, it was shown uh, some time ago then that our genes change and that actually even our diet changes. So, for example, um, a, a group sh took uh, mice that are called agouti, A-G-O-U-T-A, agouti mice, which are, are uh, fat and yellow. And they gave them a diet that was filled with uh, appropriate methylation. And now all their kids and all their grandkids and all their great grandkids were small, normal, and brown. Hmm. And so they changed the genetic uh, presentation of all their offspring by just uh, fixing the methylation defect uh, that uh, came along uh, with the epigenetics uh, and not uh, necessarily the genetics itself. So that's one misconception. Another one, for example, was you mentioned cancer. <clears throat> So, uh, in the early 1900s, about 1910, if my memory serves me, a chap uh, named Boveri suggested that cancer occurs when our uh, genes mutate 
and cause cells to grow rapidly into tumors. And so the theory that's still being taught and still being used in treating malignancies is based on Bovary's uh, suggestion, which was proven in, two, in, um, in 2013 to be incorrect. So for 100 years, we've been using the wrong theory to treat cancer. So what, uh, what Thomas Seyfried in Boston at Boston University did, <clears throat> excuse me, was to take a cell that uh, was malignant and its nucleus had mutated genes. He removed that nucleus with its mutated genes and inserted a normal nucleus, assuming the cell would now become normal. It did not, it stayed malignant. Mm. He then did the opposite. He took a normal cell, removed its nucleus, and put in a nucleus uh, that had mutated genes, assuming the cell would become malignant. It did not, it stayed normal. Wow. So after that was repeated at several other universities, it became obvious that mutated genes aren't what's driving the bus. And uh, though they're simply a secondary phenomenon. And so when you realize that, uh, that our therapies, for example, for, for example, uh, it's been shown by the Australians that the people who do chemotherapy, 2.3% um, uh, uh, of them live longer than those who don't uh, in the uh, US and 2.1% in Australia. So 90, basically 98% of people who do chemotherapy, it's ineffective. I noticed some staggering uh, stats in, in your book about cancer treatments in general, and that was certainly one of them. So the issue, again, it's not genetically driven. Now, you know, I could spend, obviously, if I had another 10 or 15 minutes to talk to you just about cancer, I could tell you what I think is the cause and how, how it works, but then uh, that would take up our whole time. So, but basically, <laughs> what I want you to take away, hopefully, from what I'm telling you is to spend a little more time doing research and do not believe that you're stuck uh, with the results of the genetic, quote, genetic lottery, that you can change your genetic function by changing not only your uh, your diet, but changing your uh, your vision of the environment in which you live. Mm. And that uh, all chronic disease starts and ends with whether or not cells lose their voltage, which causes them to lose oxygen, and then everything is downhill from there. So hopefully we'll have time to discuss that a little bit later. So I hope that answer is helpful to you. Jerry, I think that's a perfect way to segue into your book. We tend to do this segment on the podcast called More About Less, and we usually do it on the private podcast. We're going to pull it up here because I thought this was a perfect time to dive into your book. And so I've got some excerpts here. I've, I'm, I treat this book almost like an encyclopedia in a way, and this will feel like a bit of a deep dive, but I assure you we are only scratching the surface. I couldn't go through even 10% of this book right now. But I wanted to start on page 24 because it really starts with your story, Jerry. And you were a surgeon. And in 1994, in the book, you, you talk about how you developed through actually doing eye surgeries on people. You developed encephalitis, neuropathies, and a low platelet count and other nervous system defects in 1994. You said in the book, I could see a patient to diagnose what was wrong with them, but I couldn't remember how to write a prescription. I also developed spastic movements that prevented me from safely performing eye surgery. I had to quit 
uh, work on November 30th, 1995. For almost seven years, I slept about 16 hours per day. Remember that I had viruses in my brain and viruses in my spleen. And in your book, there is this really cute picture of you sleeping with, uh, you have two dogs who are sort of <laughs> sharing their electrons with you, which is really opening the door for, I think, maybe even the third chapter of the book, which is called Healing is Voltage. The book is called that, but also the third chapter there, you're talking about voltage. So what was the impetus here? Obviously, you had a tremendous tremendous problem with your own health, right? But uh, that that opened up the door for you to discover ways to heal. Exactly. So uh, I was doing the research for the laser uh, made by the company called Visex uh, that's used in LASIK surgery. I did uh, about 90% of that research and I had a, a lot of fun doing it, but we didn't know at the time that the laser wouldn't kill viruses and so I was using it actually on a, a man from India who had scars in the superficial part of his cornea to carve those scars off. And um, so at the time, we didn't know that the laser wouldn't kill viruses. So it released the viruses from his leukemia that caused his corneal scarring. And those came up, went through my mask, through my nose and into my brain. Oh. And I developed encephalitis. And so as you pointed out, it resulted in the fact that I could still figure out what was wrong with the patient, but I couldn't figure out how to treat them or remember how to do it. Plus, when I was doing cataract surgery, which I did a great deal of, um, all of a sudden I would develop a spastic movement uh, and almost jump out of my chair, mm. which doesn't work really well if you're operating inside somebody's eyeball. <laughs> and so um, in order to be sure that I never harmed anybody, I realized I had to quit. And so, so I never did hurt anybody. I, I, it never did happen to me during a surgical procedure, but I'm sure it would have had I continued on. Sure. And so, um, and so uh, I went to the, to the best doctors I could find, and I went to the head of uh, corneal immunology in, at Harvard in Boston. I went to the head of the NIH Division of Infectious Disease, and they said, well, you've got three viruses in your brain. We don't know what to do about it, so don't call us. We'll call you. Mm. And so I had two or three hours a day in which I could understand a newspaper or something similar, and then like a light switch would go off, and I couldn't understand it anymore. So I realized I had uh, a choice to make. I could use those two or three hours a day to try to figure out how to get myself well, or I could just lay down and die. Mm. And I chose the former. And so I began the process of trying to figure out how to get myself well. And so as I was sitting in my lazy chair, um, the thought came to me that if I could figure out how to make one cell work, I could make them all work. Because even though they look different, sort of like a, a, a desktop computer looks different from a uh, from say an iPad, yeah. they're basically the same. They have all the same parts. They just look different and have different software. And so it is with the human cells. They look different and have different software. So I thought, well, huh, if I can figure out how to make one of these work, I can make them all work. Mm. And so I started down that road. And so I bought a bunch of, uh, of cellular biology books, which I hadn't read in about 30 years. And as I was reading through each one of them, 
something jumped out at me. Each one of them had a either a sentence or a page devoted to the fact that cells have to run at a pH of 7.35 to 7.45. Mm. Well, I didn't remember much about pH, so I started reading about that and discovered that pH is simply measurement of voltage in a liquid as compared to voltage in a wire. So if you've got a copper wire, you turn the switch on, electrons are moving. Turn the switch off, they stop. But in a liquid, the liquid can either be an electron donor or an electron stealer. And so you use what's called a pH meter, which is a fancy voltmeter designed for measuring voltage in a liquid, and it has a switch on it. So you put it in one position, and it will tell you the pH of the of the uh, liquid. You switch it to the other direction, and it gives you the synonym, which is uh, a measurement in millivolts. So I said, huh, cells have to have voltage to work. Gosh, that makes sense. Uh, and so how do I measure it? And so that's how I got started down this path. I can continue the story if you like, but that was sort of the genesis of my realizing that I needed voltage. And as I was able to get the rudimentary equipment to measure it, I, I found my brain was running between two and four millivolts instead of the 25 millivolts where it's designed to work. And so that started my journey that I'm still on. Let me ask you this. So in, in the book on page 91, you say you will hear statements such as all disease occurs when you are acidic. What this really is saying is that all disease occurs when your voltage is low or an electron, electronic stealer state. So can we talk about that real quick? What do you mean by when your voltage is low? So... Um, Physicians and other uh, people working in health sciences uh, are taught that there is uh, such a thing as voltage in the body because we measure it with an electrocardiogram for the heart or an electroencephalogram for the brain. But, but for some reason, physiologists and physicians think that there's really not such a thing as voltage in all of our other cells, which doesn't make any sense, of course, uh, because they all have voltage. And so... The other thing that we're taught is that inside the cell, we have a molecule called ATP, which is the electron donor that makes the cell work. But that's just one of the eight batteries that the body actually has. Our, each, our body has eight different batteries and, um, uh, the, and a, a, a sophisticated electronic wiring system. So the human body is actually an electronic device. And like all other electronic, portable electronic devices, it has to have a battery system to work. And so we have these batteries. And interestingly enough, the largest batteries we have are our muscles. Now, our muscles are piezoelectric. So what does that funny word mean? So if you, are, if you distort something and it emits electrons, that's called piezoelectricity. So, for example, if you take a piece of quartz and you squeeze it with a pair of pliers, it emits electrons. And that's basically, by the way, how quartz watches work. Uh, but our muscles are also rechargeable batteries. And so our muscles are stacked one on top of each other in a very specific order, like stacking batteries in a flashlight, to form a power pack. And so every organ in the body has its own muscle battery pack. And a stack of muscle batteries what's been called an acupuncture meridian. And it's surrounded by this shiny stuff called fascia. 
So when you carve your Thanksgiving turkey, you'll see that around the muscles are this shiny sheath of things. And that is that is that uh, bird's uh, wiring system as it is yours. And that wiring system is actually in, in uh, electronics, what's called a semiconductor, which means it moves electrons very, very rapidly, but only in one direction. So what we find then is that every organ uh, gets its 25 millivolts to run from that uh, acupuncture muscle battery pack. and that But to make new cells, when cells wear out or get injured, you have to have double that, 50 millivolts. And so what you find is that anytime you have a, a chronic disease, that that battery pack has failed you, that uh, that acupuncture circuit muscle battery pack has failed you. And what do I mean by that? It's well known in, in battery technology that if you take a rechargeable battery and you drain it all the way to zero, it flips itself upside down polarity-wise. So if you think about a battery, it has a plus on one end and a minus on the other. If you drain it to zero, the plus and minus switch places. Now, if you put it in a battery charger upside down like that, it won't take a charge, will it? Mm. So all chronic disease of any consequence, you will find that the the battery pack in that circuit has flipped its polarity upside down. You, it's, it's basically, in my opinion, for example, you can't have any significant chronic disease unless you flip the polarity in its battery pack. Let me say that one more time because how... This is amazingly powerful. You cannot have any significant chronic disease unless you have flipped the polarity in that organ's battery pack. Mm. What you say in the book is that all chronic disease is always defined by having low voltage. And I found this line really powerful. You said, you can take all the medications you like and do as much surgery as you like but you will not heal unless you have negative 50 millivolts, raw materials, and a lack of toxins. And I think what's important to note here is it's not to say that all prescriptions or all medications are inherently bad or surgery is bad, but understanding that those things alone don't allow us to heal. In fact, they often will cover up the healing. The analogy you use in the book is if you have a wooden plank that is infested by termites, simply painting the wooden plank isn't going to fix the termite problem. And I think that's what we're talking about, Dr. Tennant, when we're talking about chronic illness is fundamentally there is an issue with the voltage in our bodies. So where do we go knowing that and you, in the book, we'll actually pivot here in a second to nutrition because I think that's a, a big part of it. But knowing that well, where, where do we go? If someone's suffering with some debilitating chronic illness, whether it's an autoimmune disease or something else, what, um, what do we tell them other than, hey, you don't have enough voltage? Well, I've spent the last 25 years trying to teach people how to measure it so they can know if their circuits are on or off and then what to do about it and what caused it. And we've identified five different things that cause you to flip the polarity. Not Let's enough thyroid hormone. So th the thyroid hormone T3, not T4, but T3 controls the voltage of every cell membrane in the body and the total number of mitochondria in the body. So you got to be sure to get that right. Mm. If you put a scar across your wiring system, a scar or a tattoo, you frayed the wire. And so even if the battery inside that stocking of wire is, is charged up, it can't go anyplace because you've got a screwed up wiring system. So you got to fix your scars. 
Uh, next is uh, dental infections. So when an embryo is, is, being, is forming, it forms the brain first, and then circuits go from the brain down into the rest of the body, and on their way into the body, they go through very specific teeth. So if you get a sh short or a corrosion around a tooth, by that I mean, let's say you have a dead tooth, like a root canal tooth, or you get infection in the bone around a tooth, uh, it shorts the circuit out. Mm. And so uh, the so then uh, dental infections are a very common reason that people get chronically ill. And then we have emotions. Emotions are stored in the body as magnetic fields. Mm. And if you put a magnetic field around a, a circuit, it blocks the flow of electrons, doesn't it? So our emotions do that. And we figured out, by the way, how to convert emotions into being just memories using physics and electronics. And then finally, we have toxins. And under toxins, of course, you have the usual suspects, you know, pesticides and, and infections and all of the other toxins that are around us. So, so you have, when, when you have enough of any of those five things to add up to drain your battery to zero, it flips it. And when it flips it, now you're going to get sick and nothing you can do will allow you to get well until you can flip that battery back up, its polarity back up with, a, uh, with what's called scalar energy, which will do it. And then you recharge it with electromagnetic energy. And now once your battery's charged back up, the body gets busy and heals itself because the body never forgets how to heal. It just has to have the voltage and the nutrition and get rid of the toxins to do it. Well, and that's yeah. what I teach. <clears throat> yeah, this is, uh, wow, this is so fascinating. I I'm interested, Dr. Tennant, in you know, you made this discovery about yourself. So what things did you start to do to um, get on your road to healing? Well, obviously, the the first step is you got to know where you're going. Uh, you know, I've told my kids as they were growing up, you know, you got to have a goal uh, of where you're going with your life or you'll never get there. Mm -hmm. And even if you choose the wrong direction, you can always change, but have a goal. And so it is with this. You've got to know what you're, what you're dealing with. And so, as I mentioned earlier, I've discovered that there's only one road, one pathway to all chronic disease. And so no matter what you're dealing with, whether, you know, whether you've got arthritis, whether you've got heart uh, that won't work, whether you've got breast cancer, whether you've got... Um, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, whether you've got scoliosis, whether you've got macular degeneration in your eyes, the list goes on and on. They all, you got there with all of them the same exact way. And that is you flip the polarity in its power supply. And so when you do that, you lose the ability to deliver oxygen to that uh, particular organ. Any time, and all living things, plants and animals, contain fungal spores. And when the fungal, uh, the, the reason we have fungus on the planet is to take dead or dying organic material and turn it to dirt. So, for example, uh, when a, a leaf falls off a tree, there are fungal spores on it. And when that leaf no longer has voltage and oxygen, the fungal spores wake up. And it's, it's their job to turn that leaf to dirt. Well, the same thing happens if you lose voltage and oxygen in your breast or your prostate or your liver or whatever. Uh, the fungal spores wake up and try to turn that organ to dirt. 
Mm. Uh, because that's what their job is. And then there is the stimulus uh, uh, when you lose oxygen to, uh, to have uh, stem cells go nearby and invade nearby blood vessels and make a, a mass to bring in more oxygen. And so that's where we end up. So the point is that, that no matter what's wrong with you, uh, it always goes down this same pathway. And anything else you do, short of pushing it back to where you have normal voltage and normal oxygen, is simply a Band-Aid and buys you some, perhaps not, you don't feel so bad while you're in the process of going down the tubes. Mm. But it's easy once you start understanding things and looking at the body through the eyes of physics instead of through the eyes of biochemistry it's much easier to deal with all of these so-called untreatable illnesses. And I'm a perfect example of that. You know, I was supposed to die at, in the, uh, at the uh, end of the, uh, you know, of the 1990s. And here I am 25 years later still trekking. Yeah. So, uh, Jerry, in the book, you, you talk about quite a few things I won't have time to cover here. Things like why most people are iodine deficient, uh, why it makes sense to get off antacids and drugs that stop the production of stomach acid and why a lack of stomach acid might actually cause obesity. You talk about metabolic syndrome X and fibromyalgia and hypothyroidism. You talk about the dangers of stratin or statin drugs. You talk about why most people have been exposed to Lyme disease, but only some people have the symptoms of Lyme disease. And there's a whole lot more in the book. Uh, bowling ball syndrome was something that was really fascinating to me that uh, unfortunately I won't have time to cover, but you can check that out in the book. I do want to spend some time real quick, though, on chapter five. You talk about nutrition and you say the key to making chronic disease better is making a single cell work. If you give the body the things a single cell needs to work, the body often has the power to heal all of the cells of the body. And that means you get well. And then later in the chapter, you say to be healthy. You must stop eating anything that says partially hydrogenated or canola oil. So we can talk about the problems with seed oils here. You have to stop eating fried foods and cheese in restaurants because these almost always are made of partially hydrogenated seed oils. In addition, you must stop using all forms of artificial sweeteners such as aspartame, Splenda, xylitol, and other um, sweeteners that end in OL. In fact, I stopped chewing the regular gum that I used to chew every day, most of the day after reading that paragraph. And you say all of these are severe neurotoxins that the body doesn't know how to get rid of. Stop MSG as it is also a neurotoxin. Stop smoking. That should be obvious. Stop eating soy. And now, Jerry, we got to talk about this one. Stop drinking coffee. Are you saying I have to put down this coffee that's in front of me right now? No. It's the one, my one vice in life. <laughs> well, you know, the, if, you, if you stop and think about everything that you put into your body, is this an electron donor or an electron stealer, then you will have some guidance. Mm. Um, and if you look, for example, I've read a lot of the cancer literature, for example, and everything that I can find that's ever been reported that has made cancer better is an electron donor. Everything that I can find that uh, people report, well, this causes cancer, is an electron stealer. 
And so once you start thinking in terms of electron donor and electron stealer, your life becomes much simpler. And as you might guess, people come to me all the time and, you know, hey, Dr. Tanner, will you, will you recommend this product or will you do this or whatever? And I look at it and I see, you know, what's the, what's the balance of electron donors and electron stealers in it? And then I can have a better idea. And so, you know, I, coffee has its own set of problems. It is an electron stealer and it, and it blocks the absorption of all the good minerals. Like zinc and, even and, if, and what else? Well, yeah, just basically all your good minerals get blocked. The absorption gets blocked. And it's also an electron stealer. Now, if you're doing other things, you're, you're monitoring the polarity of your uh, acupuncture circuits, which I tried to teach my patients how to do, and I, it's online, and it's an easy thing to do. It's uh, like a, you know, a pilot goes around his airplane and checks to be sure that the gas tanks are full and that you know, all the hinges work and so forth. You, could, you can do the same thing every day. You brush your teeth, and then you check your polarities. Make sure that all of your switches are on, and then you go off to work. If you find a switch off, fix it. So if you find then that that you just love coffee, but your switches are staying on, and you're doing all of the other good things, most of what you're putting in your body is uh, an electron donor. Okay, have your coffee. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe I got to get rid of it for a period of time before I, I figure out if it's the, the main culprit and everything else is going on. I have a pristine diet otherwise. Let's, uh, you know what, let's answer another question here from Jacqueline on Facebook. Can you discuss our toxic environments and the roles they play in developing chronic illnesses? Well, we know that excess is toxic. So there's a saying about, you know, the the poison is in the dosage here, but I don't think that's what we're talking about, really. What we're talking about is so-called safe chemicals that aren't really safe at all. And you outlined this in the book really well, Dr. Tennant, on page 42, in fact, you have the section about chemicals. And uh, in fact, instead of me reading it, would you like to talk a bit about chemicals? And also, we can, we can also dive into the seed oils a bit, the toxic fats that you cover in the book. Well, again, what you want to do with anything you're discussing, whether it's the the oils, whether it's um, other things, is that they're all electron uh, stealers, aren't they? And electron stealers are going to lower your voltage. And the, the beginning cause of all chronic disease is you lose your voltage. And so um, when you... Uh, Look around in your environment. For example, if you've got a smart meter on the, the wall of your bedroom, that's going to be stealing electrons all night. Mm. And so you want to put a shield up uh, to shield it from uh, dumping the, those electron stealers uh, into your room. If, you know, if you um, live near a chemical plant and uh, you, or you're living close to somebody who, where they're, uh, where they're growing crops close to a, a factory that's spewing out stuff. Um, you know, food that's harvested next to a highway is often full of uh, cadmium because of the exhaust fumes of the cars, et cetera, et cetera. So there's so many toxins in our environment, we can't really discuss them except we can be aware of them. And um, then, there, you know, once we're aware of them, we can begin to mitigate against it.
Now, perhaps the best training for that is, uh, was developed by Ibrahim Karim in Cairo, Egypt, who is the world authority on uh, scalar energy and other toxins. Uh, and uh, you can, anybody who's really wants to do a deep dive, you can go to vesica, V-E-S-I-C-A dot org, uh, and sign up to take courses in, uh, in uh, biogeometry. And they teach us how to measure our environment and then how to neutralize things. So, for example, I had them come to my home and check it. And I had a line that went right through from the kitchen pantry, right through the chair where I sit to watch TV in the evenings, and right through uh, my bed and the pillow where I lay my head. Is this line going right through there that's stealing voltage? Well, they have these devices that they put on that line to neutralize it. And so, again, there are ways, and you can go as deep a dive as you need to, but again, I want to come back and saying, how can we make this practical? Well, yeah. we make it practical by checking to see if you got any circuits that are flipped. Let me say this a, perhaps a better way. If I take a screwdriver and I stick it in a wall socket over here, it's going to flip the circuit breaker, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I go turn the circuit breaker back on, but as long as the screwdriver's in the wall socket, guess what? The, the circuit breaker keeps flipping itself back off, doesn't it? Yeah. The only way I can get it to quit is to come pull the screwdriver out of the wall socket. <laughs> yeah. So, so the same is true in the human body. So once you learn how to check your own circuits, again, that's such an easy thing to do. You can do it with your fingers and your hands. Once you learn how to do that and you do your little check and you say, huh, every morning my liver circuits out. I, no matter what I do, I turn it back on with my uh, scalar device and then again, check it in the morning, it's out again. So what's going on? So you go down this list of things, thyroid, scars, dental infections, emotions, and toxins, and you start ruling out. Is my thyroid okay? That's a blood test. Do I have scars across my circuits? Because if so, if I've had surgery, I need to have those treated uh, with the, again, with the scalar, excuse me, the scalar device. Do I have dental infections? Uh, do I have root canals? Do I have emotions? And if, if all of those are okay, you're left with toxins and then you start going down the toxin list and pretty soon you can figure out what it is that's keeping, what, which screwdriver is still in the wall socket. And, and so you just do a checklist like any other pilot would or any other electrician would check in your house and eventually you'll figure out which one it is. You fix that and now you've prevented yourself from dying with one of the so-called untreatable diseases because they're all treatable if you understand what I'm talking to you about. So, so for example, how come we are able to take people with macular degeneration and if it's not scarred, reverse it? How come, how come we can just with electronics in a matter of an hour get a straight back with somebody who has scoliosis? How can we take people that have ALS and in a matter of a few weeks, start turning it around where they're getting better and stronger instead of crashing. How can we, and you know, the list goes on. How can you do those things? Well, you do it by understanding the physics and electronics and turn, turn your circuit breaker back on by identifying the screwdriver in the wall. 
Jerry, there's so much more in the book, everything from seasonal allergies to heavy metal poisoning to essential oils. But I want to touch on one last thing with you, and that's PEMF, Pulse uh, Electromagnetic Field Therapy. Uh, You have a device called the Tenant Biomodulator, and it's not something that I've used. I've used PEMF quite a bit. Um, In fact, I have a PEMF device in, in my home. Ryan, you've had the yeah. opportunity to be on that. I think Danny has as well. And um, But please talk to me a little bit about PEMF and uh, the tenant biomodulator. Well, the, the, the biomodulator that I developed is a PEMF device, but the right. significant difference between it and most of the others is the waveform. So most uh, PEMF devices put out either a sine wave or a square wave or some modification of that. And those waves do not exist in nature. What in, exists in nature is a, uh, a, a vortex of energy that starts big, spins clockwise, and comes to a point in, in concentrating its energy, which is the waveform that comes out of the biomodulator. So it concentrates the energy so it can transfer that energy into the cell membranes or into your muscle battery packs. The other form of energy starts small, spins counterclockwise, and expands until it explodes. And a perfect example of that is a bomb. Hmm. And so, but, but again, the I think the and obviously I'm biased, but since I developed it, but I <laughs> right. think the significant difference between my device and all the other PMF devices is the waveform, which concentrates the energy and transfers it quickly into the cells. Now, no matter what PMF device you use, the body will say, well, thank you for those electrons. Yes, and for sure. uh, and the, it sucks them up and says, oh, I, thank you for doing that. But soon they're gone. Right. And if you don't recognize the fact that your battery system has failed you because the polarity's turned upside down, you have to keep putting them in every day. So it's a little bit like... Uh, taking your um, your regular gasoline car and you bring it home at night and you go out and get in it in the morning to go to work and it goes and you know oh gosh I got a dead battery <laughs> and it's the same thing so you put the battery charger on it your PEMF machine and so you get off to work and then the next day you get out go out and get in your car and, and the battery's dead again because it's flipped its polarity and it won't take a charge. You see where I'm going with this? Absolutely. I'd like to get you back to the way God made you so you don't have to recharge every day. Mm. Um, uh, by, by understanding that the reason that you are having, pro- that you even think about using a PMF device is that you've got a, a battery pack that's not holding a charge. Mm. And, what, and what we need to do is identify which of those five things have, have flipped its polarity so it won't hold a charge and fix those. Now we're getting you back to the way uh, you you were supposed to be in the beginning. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Jerry Tennant. Let's give him a round of applause, y'all. Thank you so much, Dr. Tennant. Tennant. We're going to put a link to your book in the show notes. It's called Healing is Voltage. And next time you're in Los Angeles, please stop by. I'd love to steal some electrons from you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate uh, people listening and hopefully... All of this is helpful. Uh, It's been an interesting journey for me. And uh, thank you again.
Yeah, we're yeah. really grateful for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank you, Dr. Let's tune into Instagram. We got a question mm-hmm. from Kevin. What do you think are the biggest systemic contributors to chronic illnesses and chronic addiction? Now, this, for more context, he said, I really want to hear Ryan's point of view mm-hmm. on this. Mm-hmm. And so, Ryan, I got to thinking the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's purpose. Ooh. And I learned that from Johan Hari. Yeah. We had him on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this book about the nine causes of depression. Yeah. And what's fascinating is someone has a sense of meaning and purpose and they're driven in their own lives. Mm-hmm. The addiction loses its draw. It's not nearly as compelling. And during the break, when we were just chatting with the live stream here. You and I were talking about our upbringings, our, our childhoods, mm. and we had parents who were addicted to drugs and alcohol. And I think a lot of that had to do not with the addiction itself, but with a lack of purpose in their lives. They, yeah. they had almost lost the plot in a way. I love uh, Johan Hari talks about the rat village. Yes. You remember this? Uh-huh. So uh, do you know about this, DK? No, I don't. So there was an experiment done where you had a... Uh, a group of rats or a rat or whatever it was, and they were in a cage and they were given two different waters. One was filled with, uh, 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 laced with cocaine and the other one was regular water. So um, that was one group of rats. The second group of rats, they had the same water, regular water, and then one laced with cocaine. But they had um, basically like a rat village playground. Paradise. Paradise, yeah. It was so like they rat could, heaven. Yeah, like teeter-totters and, you know, different d- different right. um, activities that they could do. So <clears throat> the rats, um, all of them, uh, eventually, you know, they tried the cocaine water. And the ones that were in the village, they stayed away from it. They, they tried uh, it once. They tried it once, didn't like it, um, uh, stayed away from it, and they started going to the regular water. The rats who were just in a cage with nothing, they drank the cocaine water and they it just they basically killed themselves. And what the experiment shows is what Josh was talking about. Like when you have something to do, when you have a purpose, when you have a community, mm-hmm. when you're excited about what's going on around you, you're less likely to um, form an addiction to, to, to a bad substance. So yeah, no, that was a great, yeah, that was a great podcast with him. Um, yeah, we'll link that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, we did an episode with him. Also, uh, I interviewed him for Love People Use Things. Malabama, do I have a copy of output up here? Because so, there are some pages in there we could read from just to talk about this. But for sure, TK, in the meantime, I'd love to get your thoughts on addiction. Because when we're talking about addiction, what we're really talking about is the drug is so compelling or other thing that we're addicted to as well, whether it's food, something that we got to, we have to talk about what an addiction is. And we're not addicted to oxygen, even though I breathe all the time because it doesn't get in the way of living my life. In fact, not breathing would really get in the way of living my life. Mm. An addiction is something that gets in the way of living a meaningful life, a fulfilled Mm. life. And it may be a temporary fix or feel like a temporary fix, but quite often it does the opposite for us. It gets in the way of us communing with one another. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like government. No, I'm just kidding. What if I just went like government? <laughs> <laughs> TK's anti-government tweet of the week. <laughs> da, 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 da. What if I just turned everything into like, yeah, that's like the, the problem with government. It's <laughs> the problem with regulation. Oh my goodness. We are regulated. No, it's a depression. Let's talk about it. You know, Josh, you, you, you talked about being addicted to coffee, but that doesn't get in the way of... I think it does, though. Does it? Okay. And, and, and so... 
Uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm making a commitment here on the podcast for the rest of this month. And I mean this month, uh, not the day this comes out because that would just be three days. <laughs> Although that'd be the longest I've gone for with. I mean, yeah. I did a three day break from coffee when I was 29. Oh, really? And I remember it was the first time I ever left work early. I had that big of a headache. So I'm going to wean myself off over the next three days. Can and you do green tea? I'm going to do no caffeine for no the rest caffeine. of the month. No caffeine. Okay, so you're 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 renouncing caffeine for a few days. Yeah, for for the rest of the month. Okay. Really. All right. Yeah, and wow. uh in doing that, when I say it might be getting in the way because is it stealing my electrons as we talked about with Dr. Tennant earlier and mm. if so, then maybe because I have a chronic illness, mm-hmm. maybe that will help. It's not going to heal me, but it will aid in the healing process. It'll make room for the healing. Yeah. 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 Hey, let me let me get a point in about this purpose and addiction stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh cuz the question is about systemic contributors, not like um what what's the one single cause, but what are some influencers, yeah. right, that are happening at a systemic level. So, um I, I never get his name right, but I think it's like Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. He's the author of Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Performance. Uh-huh. Okay. One of the things he talks about is that in order to have that sense of purpose or meaning you need to have challenges in your life that have the sensation of being voluntary. So when we go to our jobs, technically that's voluntary. Like we're choosing to do that, mm. but we often don't have the sensation of it being voluntary and we express ourselves in that way. I have to go to work, right? Which is why we tend to enjoy games more because games give us these challenges, but we are also very conscious of the fact that we're choosing to play the game. So mm. why do people watch football, basketball, even though they get angry when their team loses? Because there's the aliveness and the, the sense of adventure that comes with being able to be disappointed, but also having a choice. I can mm not care about this. So when you think about purpose, most of us are raised with a mode of education that doesn't teach us how to select our own challenges and adventures because most of our challenges and adventures are assigned to us. What are the books you read at school? Well, not the books that you choose, but the books that the teachers choose for you. And they grade you on how well you can complete an assignment that was chosen for you. Mm. But the most important aspect of education isn't your ability to complete the assignment. It's your ability to pick the assignment. People that turn out to be purpose-driven and fulfilled and live meaningful lives, they are good at picking the assignment, which is why when you go to the library, when you go to Barnes & Noble, or when you have a problem, you know how to find a book, find a YouTube video, find a resource that helps you get answers to the questions that are yours. And that's what children have to be taught. So one systemic contributor is we educate our children to be good at following instructions, not to be good at manufacturing meaning through the, through the making of their own choices. Mm, Dude, that is, that's enlightening, man. I uh, never looked at it that way. And I'll tell you, um, when we were working at our corporate jobs, it didn't feel voluntary. Yeah. Even though it was voluntary. I mean, you're right. It is, but it did not feel that way. And I mean, I had to eat some pain pills before I would go to work because it would numb that feeling of anxiety. It would, uh, it it would make it okay that, you know, just made things better. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Like I never associated it with the voluntary thing, but there is something with, uh, the minimalists. Like we, um, this is work. I yeah. mean, there, there, there's work that we have to do. But we get to but do we it. we get to do it. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because like when I broke my back, I got a big old bottle of pain pills and I was worried. Um, I had Mariah lock them up. I'm yeah. like, only give them to me like as, yeah. as prescribed. And yeah. um, like, I don't want to have access to like, just take as many as I want. And she like totally helped me with that. 
But it was interesting. Like I never even thought about going back to those um, during uh, uh, having that broken back, even though I got a little bit of a pain pill buzz, you know, every, every once in a while. But I realized like, oh, like I'm not running from anything now. Mm-hmm. And where before when I was really addicted to drugs, it was I was I was constantly running. So when you have nothing to run from and when I have nothing to run from, I'm way less likely to start um, feeding those addictions. I think what you realize now is that you are addicted to drugs, even though you don't take them. You know, a Mm -hmm. mom when when she was well, when she was alive, she was an alcoholic. And so even during her sober years, it was, hey, I'm an alcoholic. I'm addicted to alcohol. And what she was really saying is I'm predisposed. If I don't have a sense of meaning or purpose in my life mm-hmm. and in the book and love people use things, the section in here is called a crisis of belonging. I'm just going to read that to wrap up this question here. As we begin to sort through our excess material possessions, we are often confronted by a cascade of profound and unexpected truths. Truth is simple, but simple isn't easy. It's easy to hide behind our deficiencies, excuses, programming, habits, and possessions, but this prevents us from living a life that's congruent with the truth. Yet we hide because the alternative, facing the truth that our culture has handed us expectations that have broken us, is overwhelming. So we create a facade built on lies and exaggerations that doesn't comport with reality. The more, we comp- the more we complicate our lives with these untruths, the more anxious and depressed we feel, and the more we would benefit from simplifying, because simplicity exposes the truth that's buried beneath the lies of complexity. When I spoke with the journalist Johan Hari about his book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, He explained that we don't have a problem with depression and anxiety as much as we have a crisis of meaning. Hari's book highlights the nine main causes of depression, two of which involve human biology. But the major factor, major factors that have rapidly increased depression in the Western world throughout the last century involve disconnection from a meaningful life. This was certainly the case with my mother. There's a whole section here about my mother going into her alcoholic spiral. Her fall into into depression and substance abuse didn't occur until she'd lost her connection with worthwhile work, other people, and meaningful values, which are three of Hari's nine causes. So think about that for a second. Worthwhile work, that's what TK was talking about. Mm -hmm. Other people losing that community, right? And meaningful values, which led to a loss of hope which is another cause of depression or addiction, a complete loss of hope, or what I would say is despair about the future. This feels hopeless, right? Yet there were times when she willingly walked away from alcohol, but each time it wasn't as though she was running away from the beer or wine. It was because she had something meaningful to run toward. Mm. And so there's another section in here with uh, when we talked to Mayor Pete Buttigieg when he was running for president, mm-hmm. and he called it a crisis of belonging. Yeah. Uh, with in South Bend, which is very similar to other Midwestern cities yeah. uh, like Dayton, Ohio, for example, 
there seems to be this crisis of belonging, like, oh, I don't fit in here anymore, or this city was once this amazing thing, and now it is not this. And it injects that despair into our lives. And that despair, it causes us to be depressed. And that depression often leads to the addiction that actually worsens our depression. So this like fentanyl epidemic that's happening in places like South Bend, that's happening in Dayton, Ohio, um, it's a symptom, yeah, of society um, not having a, a sense of purpose or, or meaning. That is a good book, man. Who wrote that? <laughs> <laughs> well, w- with the rat experiment, the rat village experiment, yeah. one of the things it shows is that you can never succeed at cultivating discipline by just telling people what they're supposed to stop doing. Right. Right. It can't just be be free from that. It's got to be what am I free for? What's worth enduring the discomfort of letting go of what's easy for? Right. And so when we preach a philosophy of let go of this, let go of that, stop doing this unhealthy thing. Well, what's worth enduring the discomfort? Some higher purpose, some higher vision, some higher mission that makes you want to get out of bed in the morning and live, you know? Yeah. You can let go of everything only if you know what you're letting go for. That's it. That is yeah. it. My gosh. And, and there's something about addiction too um, that I'm just now realizing is that it's not about letting go of the addiction. It's about um, living with it every single day. And I, I, so I don't know what, there is a letting go of something. I don't know what it's a letting go of, but it is a, but, but, I used to tell myself like, oh, I just need to like let go of, you know, these, these, these things that I want to do in life that I'm craving. And, um, I was, I was talking to someone who went through AA and I was, you know, kind of talking to him about it. And he was like, he's like, dude, like the mistake is you think that you can just drop it and there is no dropping it. It's something that, um, yeah, that you have to deal with every day. And like your mom who during those sober, uh, years, she, I think she was aware of that, that she had to live with it every single day. Yeah. 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 But she had something more to live for. Absolutely. And that's yeah. what, that's what kept the addiction at bay. Yeah. Professor Sean, we have a question here from Jessamine. Hi, my name is Jessamine. I'm 31 and I have two extremely rare genetic diseases. So with diseases, there's about less than 2,500 people in the country that have these diseases. And one of them, uh, most people are have died by the age of 25. So the majority of my doctors, all 16 of them, (laughs) have never met someone over the age of 25 who has this disease or if they've even met someone with this disease. While managing 16 specialists and about 9 to 10 medical appointments per, per week, I am also in graduate school trying to work on my master's towards becoming a counselor so I can help people who have experienced trauma or who are also grappling with chronic illness and disability. And so really just trying to find that balance of my time, so much time spent studying for graduate school, as well as taking care of myself, because I know if I don't take care of myself, I will become extremely ill possibly risking hospitalization, if not worse. So that's my primary question. Thank you so much for looking into this. Jessamine, first thing I'll tell you is I really do think that this book, Healing is Voltage, it is a bit outside the box and it's probably these 16 doctors you've been dealing with. 
they may have some thoughts about where you are, but you sound like you're at, you feel like you're at a dead end right now. And that's where I felt before I, I read this book. And I realized like, well, wait a minute. No, the, the body is a self-healing mechanism. And even if you have a genetic disorder, right, it's not merely a life sentence or a, a death sentence, right? And so kudos to you. You've made it to 31. Let's make it another 31 and then another 31. Mm. I would check out Healing is Voltage. But I do want to read something for you because you're really talking about um, healing and in the context of self-care, right? And so in Love People Use Things, I, I, well, since I already had it out, I figured I'd read another section in here. We have a chapter in here about the relationship with self. The book is about these seven different relationships we have, the relationship with truth, the relationship with stuff, the relationship with ourself is one of these. And this section is about self-care. We interviewed our friend Randy Kay, former podcast guest as well. And here's what she had to say. We seem to have a sick care system, not a health care system. Yeah. And I think that's, that's important. I think Dr. Jerry Tennant talked about that for a moment. We aren't really good at treating chronic illness. We're great at treating acute illnesses, right? But as soon as someone becomes sick, we try to either give them medication or give them surgery or both. And quite often those things, yes, they ease the pain for a period of time, just as the drugs that you were addicted to, Ryan, ease the pain. Yeah. But it sure made things worse. Yeah. As I've demonstrated with my own misfortunes, our society likes to treat symptoms, not problems. We wait until illness strikes to take care of our, ourselves when in reality, the best health care is preventative care. That is taking care of ourselves when we're healthy so we can continue to live healthfully. Now, I'll even say this, Jessman, you are relatively healthy to where you could potentially be. Right now, I don't have all my full health, but compared to where I was in 2019, day and night difference. I mean, huge difference. So it's all about relative health as well. Quote, self-care is such an overused term, says Randy Kay, host of the Simple Self-Care podcast. But it's the best and most straightforward way to describe the healing process. Kay, a native of Fargo, North Dakota, was in her 20s when she first encountered the ideas that she would later call self-care, which she defines as the act of tuning in to your true needs and then acting accordingly. I'll just leave that there. She goes into deep detail about some questions to ask yourself about yourself and what, what self-care really is. But I feel as though we don't tune in to ourselves. During the break, Ryan, you were saying, I feel like I'm having some like stomach issues or like yeah, some sort of organ issue. Something going on, yeah. Yeah, and like, what you're really doing there is you're finally tuning into yourself and saying, mm -hmm. oh, maybe there's something else going on here. Quite often what happens is we feel there's something off. I'm not going to pay attention to that right now. Mm -hmm. I'm too busy. I'm too stressed. I got too much going on. I got the kids. I got the school. I've got the job. I've got the party I'm supposed to be at. I've got the food I'm supposed to make. I've got to drive. Yeah, all of these things that get in the way of what? Stopping, pausing, mm -hmm. tuning into ourselves. In fact, the advice we often get is, you know, just keep going, right? Mm. Keep moving forward. Mm. And that makes sense in certain contexts to push through certain things. But if we never stop, we never pause to say, all right, I need to check to see what's going on here. We don't even real look down to realize the check engine light is on. Now, Jessamine, you know the check engine light is on in your own life. 
And yet what you're saying is I still have graduate school. I've got all these things. I need to keep going. Well, maybe you don't. All of these things are optional. Even if they feel mandatory, you have the option of pausing, not even stopping, simply pausing for a moment or a day or a week or a year and tuning in with yourself. That's what self-care is ultimately all about. Yeah. That's so great, man. Um, First, I need to buy um, a cap that has a big O on it for Captain Obvious because I am a champion and an advocate of the obvious. I believe what the world needs is not more profundity. It needs more reinforcement of the things that we already know because most of the truths that save us are truths that are obvious and easy to criticize as being commonsensical, Mm -hmm. but truths that we struggle to accept, struggle to implement because we have a tendency to overcomplicate things. You know, if I went online and I said, hey, eat healthy, I'm sure I get a whole bunch of people being like, all right there, Captain Obvious. Yeah, but how many people are actually doing that, right? Mm -hmm. When you look at the most purchased books, things like encyclopedia sets or Bibles, the books that are most frequently purchased are also the least frequently read, right? Or how many people buy gym memberships or purchase, you know, workout equipment? Do they actually use it? It's easy to purchase it Mm -hmm. relative to using it. And so just because something is common sense doesn't mean that everybody is living it. The most common sense and obvious advice is often the least followed. Be assertive. Stand up for yourself. Oh, that's obvious, TK. Yeah, but are you doing it? How many people are actually doing it? Hey, you have the permission to say no. (laughs) Okay, TK, (laughs) tell me something I don't know. But do you actually do it? I met a guy last night who told me that some woman asked him out. She wasn't his his type. And he was like, oh man, what kind of lie do I come up with to tell her I don't want to go on a date with? He's like, I'm a serial killer. You know, it's like, (laughs) we would rather confess to a crime than say no, right? This is the world we live in. All the obvious truth is difficult to follow. So- I'm a champion of that, but I regress. I love it, man. I I look at the investments we make in ourselves similar to financial investments. If you want to go into philanthropy, you've got two ways you can help a cause. One is you can give a huge lump sum. You can say, I got a million dollars. I'm giving it all to this cause. The other thing you can do is you can set up an interest-bearing account whereby you give smaller amounts, but you can give for a time frame that goes beyond your own lifetime. And mm. it doesn't sound as sexy as the lump sum. You yeah. know, I'm giving you a million because you're just giving a little bit every month or a little bit every year. But over time, that turns out to be more because you can keep giving even after you're gone. And I think the lump sum approach to being generous doesn't work very well when it comes to our energy as people. If you give all of your energy to all of the people that you love all at once, you're going to burn out and that'll be all that you can give. On the other hand, if you say, you know what? I'm going to invest in myself. I'm going to invest in my capacity to be generous, albeit in smaller amounts, so that I can have an impact on a wider range of people at a deeper level for a long time, even after I'm gone. And so I would say, don't be afraid to invest in yourself. Don't be afraid to become an interest-bearing energy account in your own life. Yeah. Man, you know, it's funny when I uh, was introduced to minimalism through that Colin Wright video back in, I don't know, 1947, however long ago it's been. <laughs> I, uh, I remember thinking, this is common sense. Oh, live within your means. <laughs> and, then, and then you look around your house and you're like, wait a minute. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, I thought, you know, I, I kind of brushed it off um, at first because, yeah, common sense. Uh, 
I got common sense, but I mean, I might have the common sense, but I certainly wasn't acting on it. And, yeah. you know, the joke I always make is like common sense. It's not too common these days, yeah. but there are these cliches. There are these um, common pieces of advice. That, and I totally agree with you, man. Like we brush them off because we hear them so much, but we hear them so much for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Because every generation struggles with them. Amen. Yeah. But the value of talking about these things over and over again is because when the common sense advice resonates with us, when it grabs us by the heart and makes us say, I'm ready for it now. My mom's been telling me this. My friends have been telling me this for years, but now I'm ready for it. It's because not only has life brought us to a place where our hearts are open to it, but also maybe someone combined it with the story or a metaphor or an analogy. They put it in a way that was unique enough for it to enter our hearts and minds from a different angle, the precise angle that we need it. And so that's why I think we should all, in our own unique way, continue to say the things that need to be said, no matter how many generations before us have said them. Professor, we got another anonymous question here. This one's from Montana. I have an abundance of health information bouncing around in my head. I have firsthand experience of what my body responds well to and what acts like poison in my body. I've acquired knowledge and understanding on how and why foods can heal or make me sick. I have access to recipes, a kitchen full of tools, the money to fill my fridge with nutritious healing food. I've even paid for reliable food sensitivity tests. And while my GP has not been overly helpful, my naturopath has been. Together, all of this could have me in great condition, but I'm not. The littlest amount of milkshake, gluten, or alcoholic beverage is so damaging to my inflammation and blood sugar levels that I get discouraged and so severely symptomatic that I just end up eating more of said food that's essentially poison for my body in some warped attempt to make me feel better. The physical pain is so severe that the lesser of two evils has been for me to use some alcohol in the evening to take the edge off. THC isn't a good option for me and opioids are something I'll avoid at all cost. CBD doesn't really touch the pain, but I do use it sometimes. Over-the-counter painkillers, they're not strong enough and actually make the inflammation worse later for me. No amount of food prep keeps me disciplined through the whole day, let alone a week. I ask myself and have really considered that maybe this is a self-worth issue, that I have not been able to be more like Joshua, who's fiercely protective of his health. I do seem to have some sugar addiction symptoms. Social pressure also affects me and I'm not in a position to avoid many of the scenarios that arise. How do I transcend these patterns when all the information in the world doesn't intervene? I ask myself, what is missing if present would make the difference? I keep coming back to discipline being the thing that I need. But if that's the case, how do I grow that? The pain is so severe that it's hard to cope. I use distraction and busyness as a way to force myself not to think about what my body is feeling. I need to find a way out of this experience. I'm spiraling. Being approximately 40 pounds overweight, in pain and sick is literally killing me. And it's a slow, miserable route to travel towards death on. God, I have so Mm. much compassion for you. I... I, I resonate with this so much. And I'll just say this to start. Discipline doesn't work. No. 
at least not for what you're trying to do. Discipline for a short period of time might get something done today. You can have discipline to stave off the sugar for this meal. But on a long enough timeline, whether it's social pressures, societal pressures, temptation, impulse, something's going to creep in that's going to kill your discipline. Now, there are two, at least two types of people in the world, and uh, Bex and I have talked about this on, on her podcast, How to Love. Um, Bex is more of a moderator. I'm more of an eliminator, mm. right? <laughs> and our caller here, it sounds like you would benefit more from elimination. You know, one way to look at that is feasting ver- versus fasting. And for me is, I can't, it's all or nothing for me, right? Mm -hmm. And so at first that seems really, really restrictive. My diet to the average person is so hyper restrictive. They look at that and they say, oh my God, I could never do that. Mm -hmm. It must take a lot of discipline. Wrong. It takes no discipline to maintain my really strict autoimmune diet. But the reason that it takes no discipline is because I've simply said, I can't do those other things. It's not restrictive. You know what is restrictive, really? Being in crippling pain 24 hours a day. It's suffering throughout the day is so much more restrictive than, oh, no, I can't eat that processed packaged food. In fact, what I found is that my diet is so restrictive that it's freeing. Because I go to the grocery store. I walk <laughs> in there and I say, oh, None of this is food. Mm. And why, why do I say that? Well, it has to do with pain. Pain is a compass that points us toward healing. Mm. And I think the caller's problem is actually she hasn't suffered enough pain yet. And I know that sounds insensitive, but mm. it's the opposite. I understand the pain that you're in. And you're 98% of the way there. Having that last 2% of pain, really recognizing that the healing takes place when you're fed up with the pain. This is enough. I'm not willing to touch another drop of alcohol. I'm not willing to touch anything that's inflammatory. Now, for you, it could be different from what is inflammatory for me. Yeah, If I eat a potato, it feels like my ankles are broken because of the autoimmune disease that I have. And so I just don't eat potatoes. It's not an option for me because I know how painful that's going to be. Is that restrictive? No, not nearly as much as the pain is going to be. Waking up in terrible, crippling pain is awful. It's so restrictive that it's not even an option for me. I'm not compelled by the potato. I'm repelled by it because I know how much pain it's going to bring into my life. Hmm. And then the last thing I'll say is, yes, there are social pressures, but 98% of those social pressures are internal. The other people around you don't really care what you're eating or you're drinking. And if they do, if they're, oh, come on, they're trying to push some sort of substance onto you. Those probably aren't the people you want to be around anyway, because the people who love you and care about you, like Ryan's never trying to you know, force alcohol down my throat or Josh, you should really eat some kale. <laughs> I did force pizza on you one time and I highly regretted it. <laughs> Wait, I, you want me to tell that story real Go quick? Go for it. So uh, we were in San Francisco. This was like 2011. December 2011. Yeah. And um, Josh had just been diagnosed with a gluten sensitivity and... Uh, we, we had an event that we had to be at. We were kind of running late. Um, we found a parking spot like right up front and uh, we parked. And then Josh is like, I got to eat something before we go into the, the venue. We didn't have much time. And there was a pizza place right next to the venue. I'm like, dude, 
I'm like, just eat a piece of pizza. Like, let's just eat some pizza. We'll call it a night. We'll go to the event. Like, you know, um, cause I didn't take it seriously. I thought he had like the, you know, the gluten allergy, the, the, the in vogue allergy of the year, you know? Um, I have never turned anyone. I've never seen anyone turn green like Josh did after eating that piece of pizza. I felt so bad, like talking him into it. Cause he was like, yeah, you're right. Like I'll just go ahead and do it. And like, he didn't fully understand like how, how much gluten was affecting him. But yeah. um, I didn't have the the full pain yet. I didn't understand. And I started to understand that night. There was a lot of pain. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden you realize like, oh, this isn't a path I want to go down again. Yeah. What's interesting about your pain is even though you experienced the amount of pain after that experience that was sufficient for you to like get it together, it's not the case that you experience that vivid pain in every moment Mm. where perhaps the right decision making is required. Right now, you're not in that pain, but you're still going to make the right choice. What's going on there? Herein lies the distinction between knowledge of truth and remembrance of truth. Knowledge of truth is about having the intellectual awareness of fact. Remembrance of truth is about finding ways to maintain a sense of vividness, finding a way to hold on to that truth in spite of the fact that my circumstances and conditions are sometimes going to make it easy for me to forget. C.S. Lewis says, faith is the art of holding on to what you already know to be true in spite of your shifting moods. Mm. That's the challenge of life. We know what we need to do to live healthfully, but we often forget it. There was this... uh, TV show one time where they played like this Halloween prank where they would walk people through this morgue and through this cemetery. And these would all be people who claim to not believe in ghosts and things like that. And so they walked them through the morgue. They'd be like, are you afraid? Or no, like, why would I be afraid? I'm in a morgue. I'm in a cemetery. But then at nighttime, the people had to do this challenge where they had to walk through the morgue and walk through the cemetery. And they played this spooky music and everything when they were doing it. And people were freaking out. And it's like, well, what's going on? intellectually, these people don't believe in ghosts. And in a sober moment, it's so clear. But when you turn off the lights, when it's dark outside, when you're playing spooky music and you're walking through a morgue and you got all the horror movie associations, what you know to be true kind of feels untrue, Mm. right? Mm. And your non-belief in ghosts starts to feel a little bit questionable. And that's what life challenges do to us. Like, We know what that road leads to. We know that we don't want to go down that path, but it feels like maybe it'll feel good this time. And so one thing I'd recommend is when you have those moments of pain, find a way to take some kind of snapshot of it. What works for you as a reminder of the pain you feel when you do the things that are unhealthy for you? Because in those moments of temptation, The voice of temptation is going to show you a very vivid picture of the comfort and pleasure that you feel. And you need a picture of the opposite that is more compelling than that. What is that picture for you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing I want to talk about, um, I know people are know of people who basically drink themselves to death and they were told like, hey, you need to stop drinking. Otherwise, like it's, it's going to kill you. Yeah. And, um, they knew the consequences. They had the pain. Happened to my father. So they, um, knowing that death was on the line, they still continue to do things. And I, I really feel, uh, you know, this question here because there is something where like she knows she has the pain and 
I, I, uh, I guess I want to ex- expound or see if there's a different angle with, um, cause Josh, you mentioned that she hasn't experienced enough pain mm-hmm. and I would, and, and I would just say maybe there's something else that she can use as leverage because it sounds like she has felt the pain. Like she understands the consequences. She understands where she's heading. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know what else, yeah. I guess I'm just trying to dig in to see what else can someone like this, mm-hmm. what can they use as leverage um, to, yeah, to, to, to start changing the behavior Yeah, besides the pain. Yeah. So it's not about renunciation, but it is about setting up those limitations or those boundaries because TK illustrated it quite nicely here. You have the intellectual pains. So she knows about the pain. Right. But then there's the visceral pain. That you, the pain that you actually feel, right? Mm. And remember, being able to remember that pain in those moments makes that putting that sandwich in your mouth or the ice cream or the alcohol totally unbearable. Yeah. But the only way that you get there is by being able to remember that pain before mm. it goes into your body, knowing what that is going to do, actually knowing the consequence not intellectually, Mm. but viscerally. And if you're able to know that, then those boundaries become so much easier. I'm not saying no to those things, to gluten or to vegetables or whatever, Mm -hmm. the things that are triggering to my immune system. I'm saying yes to a pain-free life. Mm. And that's what I'm saying yes to. And right now, it feels like she doesn't really know what she's saying yes to. She knows she doesn't want the pain, but she's willing to tolerate the pain. But that's the reason I say you need more pain because if you get to a pain point like I did, where you're not willing to tolerate that anymore, Mm. then all of the actions unfold right there in front of you. There's no how to. You simply know that I can't touch those things Mm -hmm. because they're awful for me. Mm. I'm going to give one more thing for you. Anyone who's dealing with a amount of chronic inflammation in their life. I wouldn't recommend this to your average person. Danny and Jordan probably don't need this. But if someone is dealing with chronic inflammation, it's almost always stemmed by what you're putting down, you're pouring into your neck every day, right? Whatever's going down your neck often causes the inflammation in your life. Uh, There is a great neurosurgeon, a doctor. His name is Dr. Anthony Chafee. And uh, he has a YouTube channel. I'm going to put a link to his YouTube channel in the show notes. He is called the Plant Free MD, which I know for some people sounds a bit triggering. Like I said, I'm not proselytizing. I'm not trying to convert anyone to this. But if you're dealing with serious inflammation, there is a way out. And I think he can help you with that. Uh, His name is Dr. Anthony Chafee. He's uh, based out of Australia. He's an American, but he's a a neurosurgeon over in Perth, Australia. Yeah. Yeah, Well, she mentioned addiction too. And I think there's something there with Mm. um, going back to having a purpose. And Mm. that's, I think, what you're kind of touching on, Josh, is knowing what she's saying yes to, knowing the purpose that she's saying yes to. So it's avoiding the pain, but it's also running towards um, that purpose. Um, yeah, but there, there is something, and, and we, I don't think we'll be able to hash it out here, but there is something else like that I would love to dig into about people know, like the, people know the negative effects that things are going to have on their lives mm-hmm. to the point of death and they still do them. It's pacification. Yeah. And you would, but you would think that like that, that knowing of death being on the line, you would think, 
I would think that that would be enough to like change habits, but um, it's not always enough. Yeah, I, habit change doesn't work. Do the same way discipline. It's the same thing. We're mm. just calling it by a different name. Yeah. Habit change in and of itself does not work because as soon as it becomes more compelling than the change, you revert back, right? And so whether it is alcohol or food or coffee or whatever the addiction is, mm -hmm. yes, I can, most of the time I don't drink coffee. And right. yet I'm still drinking two or three cups every day, right? Because I go back to it. And what we're saying here is that anytime you go back to something, it's because you don't have something compelling enough right there in front of you. If there is something compelling enough in front of you, then you don't even feel the desire to go back. Yeah. You know, motivated people tend to be very good at making their vision of the reward visceral and keeping it that way. You know, they do cheesy things like hang up posters in the room of how they want to look or listening to a certain kind of music when they work out. And so being motivated to do what you need to do does come from a sense of like keeping the truth of that I already know vivid. But but there, there's one little quick story I want to tell. There's a story of a monk named, I believe it's Anthony of the Desert. And the story was that he was one day attacked by this legion of demons. And when the demons begin to attack him, he says, what are you doing? There must be some kind of misunderstanding. You must have mistaken me for someone important. I'm, I'm not even important. Why are you attacking me? And at that moment, the demons all begin to flee because demons cannot enslave a man who refuses to think too highly of himself. And the moral of the story is that the way out of bondage, the way out of oppression, the way out of captivity, the way out of addiction is the willingness to be humble the willingness to th not think too highly of oneself. And one of the benefits of being able to say something like, I'm an addict, I'm helpless, is in that humility, you're able to find freedom because that's how you create the accountability that you need. And so motivation isn't just about focusing on the rewards, but it's also about being willing to set that ego aside and saying, hey, you know what? I've tried this on my own and I'm ready to admit that I can't do this without help. I can't do this without accountability because if I'm left to my own devices, yeah, I'm going to destroy myself. And I, and I wish I was the kind of person who was strong enough and noble enough to say the opposite, but I'm not that person. I'm weak. Mm. I'm an addict. Somebody help me. That's, that's where the power comes. What you're talking about here is the freedom of letting go. Because I've let go. I, yes, I would love to eat a piece of chocolate cake today, right? And a piece of pizza oh. and a burrito from Chipotle. Mm. But I can't do that because not only are those things killing me long-term, but they kill me in the moment. And I feel some sort of pain, even if it is simply I'm not my optimal self, that is enough for me to let go of it, mm. to release it and say, hey, that is not for me. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from social media. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. During the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer questions with a short shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. 
You can find all of our minimal maxims over there in the show notes. We have a question from Nadine on Facebook. How can minimalism be used as a tool to assist the prevention and management of chronic illness? Okay, so today on the private podcast, we spoke with Dr. Jerry Tennant about chronic illness. We dove into his book, some of that on the public version as well. Go ahead and throw 60 seconds on the clock for me because I want to unpack this with something pithy. If addition is the cause, subtraction is the cure. Mm. Too often what we're trying to do to prevent or cure chronic illness or to prevent or cure chronic stuffitis, the material possessions in our homes, is add more. You know what will solve my problem with stuff if I just go to the container store and get a bunch of bins. I buy things to fix my problem with things. And then we do the same thing with our medical problems as well. If I were to just get more medication or more treatment or more doctor's visits, more, more, more is actually the cause of the dis-ease. So subtraction is the real cure. Mm, I love it. All right. All right, Professor Sean, give me 60 seconds. Um, My pithy answer is this, more consumption, more problems. Or you could say, more consumption, more problems. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the thing, is that when we consume more, we're bringing uh, bringing more things into our life, um, whether it's physical clutter or whether it's uh, bad food, whatever it is. If we're consuming more food, we're consuming more physical items. If we're consuming more entertainment, we are going to have more problems. We we have to be able to set up these boundaries so we can avoid things like you know chronic illness so, and, and, pre- and prevent things like that. But also you're preventing a cluttered mind. You're preventing a cluttered home. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it sounds so simple and it is simple, but, uh, but we all know simple ain't, ain't easy. Yeah. Ladies and jo- gentlemen, TK Coleman's got 60 seconds. Enlighten us. Minimalism maximizes the value of everything. Mm. Dr. John Deloney uses the metaphor of walking around with a backpack full of bricks to capture the idea of the things that weigh us down. If you're walking around with a backpack full of bricks, no matter what you do, go for a walk, go for a bike ride, go for a hike, sit down to have dinner. You are going to be unnecessarily weighed down. You're going to be heavier. But when you start taking bricks out of that backpack, you are lighter, you are freer. And no matter what you do, you bring that lightness and that freedom to the activity. Mm. We can't tell you how to be you. That knowledge comes from within. What we can help you with is the art of letting go of the things that unnecessarily hold you back from being who you already know to be. Minimalism can make every aspect of your life better because it's about letting go of those things that keep you from being the best version of yourself you already know how to be. Yes! (laughs) Nice! I mean, technically, he was half a second over, but... (laughs) We'll clean it up in post. We're going to check in with our Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, a little segment we do where we talk about one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. It's TK's favorite time of year. Not only is today, the day we're recording this, his birthday, but it it is Christmas time. Mm. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Hey, I I wrote an anti-horror story on Facebook. What? Um, (laughs) 
you got to let me read this. Uh, okay. we, maybe we don't have time today and maybe we'll come back next week. But I got a little anti-horror story that I wrote for all of the people who are like, you can't play that Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Uh, I think you all will like it. I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> all right. I'm looking forward to that. For Speaking of Christmas, TK, we have, as you know, the Minimalist Rule Book, 16 Rules for Living with Less, which you can download for free over at theminimalists.com. And in there, two of those 16 rules are about gift giving. We have a gift giving rule that we call it the minimalist gift giving rule. Mm -hmm. I, I won't spoil it. You'll have to download the free ebook in order to read that. But then we also have the minimalist gift getting rule. Oh. And as minimalists, we still accept gifts. And we talk about both of those rules in the Minimalist Rulebook. If you're looking for other Christmas-related materials on minimalism, check out our YouTube channel. If you just go to youtube.com slash The Minimalists and you type in Christmas there on the little search bar, there are quite a few Christmas videos we have on there. So Ryan and I did three seasons of this show called Living Room Conversations. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of those was season two, episode 17, What's Christmas morning like in a minimalist home? Little episode that he and I did together. There's another episode over there called, Can We Talk About All These Stupid Christmas Gifts? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, another one, a question that we had was, How do you get people to stop buying you gifts? You'll find a whole lot more of that. A bunch of free materials over there about Christmas. If you go to youtube.com slash the minimalists and just type in Christmas in the search bar. Let's tune in to our Patreon live stream. Alabama, you got a question for us? I sure do. We have a question here from Lisa. She wants to know if there are any insights into the evolutionary reasons as to why some individuals suffer from migraines. You know, I started suffering from migraines just this year. Mm. And I, during our added value segment, which we're going to do on the, the private podcast this week, I have something that's helped out immensely with the headaches. Um, I found that it's, there are multiple factors in my, I went to go see our um, chiropractor, uh, Jamie Montalban and, yeah. and Dr. Fantasia. Did you yeah. know Fantasia's going out on his own now? No way. Uh, they're, they're breaking oh, up the duo. Oh, man. Dude, they, they they make the best team. They really do. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they had me get this particular neck pillow that I lay on like three times a day for two minutes a day. Huh. And it's helped the migraine significantly. On a previous episode, I talked about the CO2. And, and maybe if you're breathing too much CO2, that can lead to headaches as well. Mm -hmm. Also, overdoing it on any vitamins uh, or supplements can, can cause headaches. Oh, um, sinuses are another reason that we tend to get migraines if we have some sort of sinus congestion. And then in this book, Healing is Voltage, there's the whole chapter about bowling ball syndrome, which causes migraines. Mm. And so you have to check that out. Uh, one thing that the chiropractors really helped me out with is mine tends to be this muscle right here when it gets real tight. If I'm sleeping on it funny, if I lay on it funny, this muscle here causes migraines. I feel him when he like adjusts right here. I can feel it up here in my head. Oh, wow. So those are all multiple factors. Um, migraines are just telling us it's a, a sign. It's the pain that ports, points us toward the healing, as we talked about earlier on the private podcast. Yeah. That pain is pointing you toward a direction to go so that you can heal. Mm. All right, before we get to our listener tips today, Coming up on the private podcast this week, we have a private minimalist home tour. We have our impulse purchases segment. We, of course, have TK's tweet of the week. 
We have an outstanding added value segment for you and much more of less. In the meantime, Alabama, what do you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, I have two tips. So on a Patreon podcast, Ryan mentioned that he wasn't even aware of how many advertisements he was seeing on a certain service. And I live in New York, so there are advertisements everywhere on the subway, at the bus stop. And so I just started saying to myself in my head, advertisement. Every time that I see an advertisement, that way I'm a little bit more aware of what I'm seeing. My other tip is I would highly recommend the book, The Power of Habit. It is fascinating for many reasons. One of those is related to advertisements. They talk about specific companies and the kind of mental manipulations and data that they study to try to get us to buy things that we do not need. And for me, uh, just kind of knowing that when I enter a store helps me reason through maybe things that I have the urge to buy that aren't on my list. This is Rochelle from Saginaw, Michigan. I just finished the subtract episode and I have a suggestion for Kelly and anyone who's trying to listen more. I have adopted a practice of adjusting my posture when I realize that I'm in a situation where I need to listen. For example, if I'm seated, I stack my hands in my lap with my palms up. And this reminds myself that I am here to receive what the other person has to say. I hope this this tip helps Kelly and anyone else trying to listen more. Thanks. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. We'll check in again with the Patreon live stream here in a little bit. So drop your questions and comments in the chat. First, we already did our More About Less segment with Dr. Jerry Tennant. So I'm going to dive into some talkaboutables, or I have one talkaboutable for you today. It's a video. I, I don't like to do videos on the podcast because I know a lot of people are, are listening to the audio version, but we'll do our best to describe this anyway. I'm calling this the junk drawer challenge. So good, man. Or as Ryan would say, the drunk drawer challenge. The drunk challenge. drawer challenge. The drunk drawer. <laughs> <laughs> this is how to eliminate the junk in your junk drawer today. Shout out to one of our Patreon subscribers, Kate, who sent us this TikTok video. Mm-hmm. Professor, would you play that for us? This used to be the junk drawer, and he cleaned it all out, and he put everything in this box, and he's telling me that unless I can name stuff that's in there that I want out, he's getting rid of it all. And the only thing I can think of right now is my twist ties, which I'm. the twist ties are coming out of the box. You got that. That's... Sure, one prize. Where's the scissors? Where are the scissors? Scissors. All right, that's two. You were gonna throw away scissors. You're gonna throw everything out, though. Yes. Like you don't need anything. What about things that you need? It's all junk. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all junk. It's junk drawer. Some of it we probably needed. No. You're gonna start the show where you go. I go to people's houses, take everything out. And they gotta tell me what was in their house to get it back. <laughs> Otherwise means that Otherwise it's garbage. But they didn't need it. Yeah. I hope they remember their kid's name. <laughs> this used to be the junk drawer. And he cleaned it all it's out. It's so good. That's name. genius. I showed this to Mariah. I was like, will you please do this with my stuff? <laughs> <laughs> this is a packing party for your junk drawer, but you're doing it for someone else. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to be clear. I would never encourage anyone to go take their 
partner stuff. So what we have here in this video, if you're just listening to the audio version of the podcast, what we have here is a husband and wife couple. And the husband has packed up everything in their collective junk drawer, which often turns into junk drawers. When we were doing Ryan's packing party, he had seven junk drawers. And it's because one junk drawer fills up. And instead of dealing with it, well, I've got another drawer here. I can just turn that into junk drawer number two, number three, et cetera, et cetera. And so what happens is... We have a bunch of stuff and we don't even remember what was in there. And I love what she said there because it exposes exactly our psychology mm. that leads to the excess. There yeah. are probably some things that I need in there. Well, she didn't even say there are things that we think we will need. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's like it's this um uh the 2020 rule. Mm-hmm. It's it is this rule of we hold on to all these just in case items and they usually end up in the junk drawer. Yeah. So the minimalist rule book. You can download it for free at theminimalists.com. 16 rules for living with less. One of those is the just-in-case rule or the 2020 rule. Mm -hmm. I think you combine that with Ryan's packing party, and then you combine it with something new that we called the didn't know rule. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't even know I owned this. Almost everything in her junk drawer, she didn't realize she owned. And like I said, don't do this to to someone else without their permission. But I love that you went to Ryan and said, hey, can you do this with our junk drawer? Because... If you don't remember that it's in there, you can give yourself permission to let it go. Mm. You know, what was interesting is when she says, well, what if you need it? It's kind of like I imagine this little um, hoarding leech that's just attached (laughs) to her and it's feeding on her energy and it's trying to come up with every excuse to stay alive, to stay attached to her. Mm. And she's like, okay, I guess I don't need it. But then the horror leech screams, but what if he needs it? Right. What if the world needs it? What if our neighbor needs it? Yeah. yeah. Right. It's like, no, you got to go, hoarder leech. You got to go. <laughs> oh, man, that's so crazy. Wow. By the way, we could uh, come up with an action movie called The Eliminator, where <laughs> we basically we're all black and we take everything from people's houses, Ocean's Eleven style. We, we pull off these like elaborate schemes and just make everything disappear. Nobody is harmed. <laughs> and instead of saying in exchange for a ransom, we'll give you your stuff back. It's like, no, you get everything for free. We'll move it in. Right. Mm. And we'll pay you. Right. As mm. a reward. But you got to tell us what we took. Yeah. And everyone's happier at the end of the movie. <laughs> oh, because man. Now all of a sudden they have all the things that are really useful for them. Like, oh, yeah, my couch is missing. My blender, which I use every day, is missing. My bed, mm. I need that. I need my dress shirt. I need my pair of jeans. And all of a sudden you start going through all these things. This is exactly what Ryan did with his packing party. And in, in the last yeah. film on Netflix, Less Is Now, in that film, you see the reenactment of Ryan's packing party. It's taking his giant junk drawer, his giant condo <laughs> right. and packing up everything. And he didn't remember what was in most of the boxes. Mm. And that allowed him to release, to let go of the excess. I love doing this with your junk drawer. And so if you're listening to this, if you're watching this, the junk drawer challenge, eliminate all of the junk today. You can partner up with your spouse, with your significant other, with your roommate, you can pack up their stuff. They can pack up your stuff. And then you have a little game together. Can you name what is in this box? And if not, it's got to go. TK, what time is it? It's time for TK's Tweet of the Week. Yes. <laughs> that was good harmony. That was better harmony for sure. You better. got you got a tweet there from our friend, Dr. Nicole LaPera. She's going to be on the podcast in two weeks. Hey, wait. Yeah. Uh, what does she say in her tweet? She says... Dr. Nicole LaPera, our inner voice tends to be the voice of the adult we spent the majority of time with from birth to age seven. 
So that's terrifying to me because it makes me want to go back with Ella and spend more time with her so that she, I can be her inner voice. But that's also my own hubris talking mm-hmm. like, oh, I, uh, I need to impart this wisdom into Ella, right? Yeah. But it is true that the first, whatever it is, four to seven years of your life, it creates a particular inner voice, a, you don't have to say inner voice, a worldview that shapes us for the rest of our lives. Now, mm. can we unprogram from that? Sure. But why not have the the best programming during those first seven years? What was so appealing about that tweet to you? First, I got to give a shout out to my mom again. So grateful for her because when we were kids, she would be all over us about our semantics to the point of being super annoying with it. So Think about how many times in a day someone, you know, says, hey, can you do this? And you just honestly answer the question by saying, I can't do that. Like, I I can't spell that word or, you know, I can't change a flat tire. She would always correct us and tell us, you can, you haven't learned how to do it. And then she would make us say it again in the right way. Like, I can spell the word but I haven't applied myself to learning how to do it yet and be so annoying, right? Or sometimes my brother would make a joke and I'd be like, oh man, you're killing me. Or someone would irritate me and I'd be like, you're killing me. She's like, no, they're not killing you, right? Like they're irritating you, you know? Mm -hmm. And when we'd have to rephrase it. And that was annoying, but I'm so grateful that she did that to us because I even do that to myself this day. If I feel inclined to say, I can't do that, I stop and I ask myself, wait, is that a true limitation or is that something I have the potential to do and I simply haven't made it a priority? And that actually teaches me to take greater responsibility for my life because it's more honest sometimes to say, I can do that, but I haven't prioritized the development of that skill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is I heard someone else say, um, be careful how you talk to your children because in a few years, that's probably going to be their inner voice. So that's another angle from which to look at it, right? Um, I even saw my mom correct another parent whose kid was acting up and they said, you're so bad, stop being so bad. And she says, don't tell your kid that he's bad, mm. you know? Just encourage him to do what you've already taught him to do, you know? And, and sometimes we're just so loose and so casual um, with the words that we use to describe others and describe ourselves. And what I love about Dr. Nicole's tweet here is that it reminds us that, you know, we shouldn't always dismiss the value of semantics as merely a matter of language, because sometimes that language gets internalized as a vibration that will ultimately create our destiny. Words matter. We think in words often. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, uh, I'm just now realizing like the inner voice in my head is my dad's voice. Ooh. Yeah, it's in, which is, uh, I like it because it's a very compassionate tone. It's a very caring tone. It's a very loving tone. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, as much as I, uh, you know, talk about the strained relationship we have and how, you know, we don't talk a lot. Um, he did give me that, that inner voice that, uh, I really appreciate. Let's move on to some impulse purchases, little segment we do. So we've got these three other segments. We do impulse purchases, this one is from Sarah. You can email yours, by the way podcast at theminimalists.com. We have another segment called Amass It or Trash It. You can write in and say, hey, should I keep this? Should I let go of it? And then we have obsolete objects as well. Maybe you've realized something in your home that you once got value from is now obsolete and you've decided to let it go. This one today is this person saw a impulse purchase or was forced into impulse by a tricky car repair shop. What do you got for us, Alabama? 
Sarah sent in and said that she recently took her car in and asked a service center to check out the coolant lines. A few hours later, she received a text with a menu of service items, and there were six different things marked in bright red, needs immediate attention. Mm. Not one of these items addressed the coolant problem. And when she went to pick up the car, the person checking her out felt the need to discuss all these things that they wanted her to do. So she picked one at random and asked, do the spark plugs need to be replaced? And he responded with, well, it's recommended maintenance. She realized that they had assessed the car for every possible thing they thought she might pay for without even looking at those repairs. They were trying to get her to impulse buy $1,200 in repairs by putting it in front of her with some red emergency tags. She said, you really have to know what you're asking for when you're going into these repair shops and understand why they're recommending certain repairs to avoid impulse buying a car overhaul. By the way, they wanted to charge her $300 to replace two light bulbs that were not essential to the operation of the car. Yikes. Ryan, Mm. this is a recipe for losing someone's trust almost immediately. Oh, yeah. It's short-term gain for the business, but you're losing a long-term customer. This happened to me, and I'm going to shout them out here. Excuse me. This happened to me with uh, Hollywood Toyota. Mm. I uh, had a meeting with Netflix one day, and so I couldn't go to drop my car off. I was having several things. I was just having an oil change and stuff. And uh, one of the headlights went out the day that I was taking it in. Just total coincidence. And anyway, my wife took it in, Mm -hmm. and they totally took advantage of her. And they charged her a couple hundred dollars to replace one light bulb. Wow. And I called them. I said, hey, you not only did you take advantage of someone, it's like, it seems a bit predatory. Like, oh, you're taking advantage of this woman who brings it in there. She wasn't sure about the car. And I just thought, yeah, go ahead and, and bring it in there. And it wasn't Bex's fault, but they did the same thing there where it was, oh, you know what? I'm going to create this sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. Needs immediate attention. Mm. This is urgent. You should do it now. Because it benefits our month or our quarter or my sales bottom line. I don't care about you, Mr. Customer or Mrs. Customer. I care about the profitability today. The irony of that is you actually lose profitability long term. Mm -hmm. But many businesses, and this is one of the big problems with having to appease shareholders, having a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders or business owner, quite often they only see the week or the month that is in front of them and they lose out on a lifelong customer because, I mean, it's clear to me that Sarah's not going to go back to this place. She feels taken advantage of. And if you feel taken advantage of, you feel used, you feel, it feels gross. Yeah. And you don't want to do business with someone like that in the future. And so, yeah, they might have gotten $100 or $200 extra out of you. But you know what you just did, Sarah? You paid a couple hundred extra dollars to know that you never want to do business with that company ever again. That's what I did with Hollywood Toyota. Yeah. I will never, ever go back after they took advantage of my wife. Yeah. It's almost yeah. like it's their version of act now while, while supplies last or... Um, yeah, it's like the, the, uh, yeah, you see those commercials where they're creating this false sense of urgency Mm -hmm. and yeah, I certainly feel that, um, when I go to the dealership too and it's tough because like, I'm not a car guy, you know? So like you, you bring it and, and, and mechanics know this and dealerships know this. They're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, this guy isn't a car guy. Mm. We're going to get as much as we can out of him. Mm. You know, I used to be the kind of guy who would never write a negative review because I felt like 
I just don't want to be that person. I don't want to be a hater. You know what I mean? And like, maybe my experience was bad, but I don't want to trash anyone's reputation. I know what it's like to be in business and sometimes misunderstandings happen, but I have changed that because in the same way that you are doing a service to others by letting them know about a business that takes care of their customers, you can save a lot of other people time and stress and energy by saying, hey, look, this was my experience with this entity here. I don't trust them. I I think that's something that's worth doing. And I think that's a service that you can perform for people. There are some people that just don't take care of their customers and I think it's useful to call them out. We got a little segment we do called Sucky Ads. As you know, we think advertisements suck on this podcast. You can email us your sucky ads, podcast at theminimalists.com. This one's from Matt. It's a candy bowl. Let's take a look at that photo. Danny Unknown. We got a photo here. It's up on the screen. Mm-hmm. And this is a store called It's Sugar. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> and it says, you know you want it. Absolutely no nutritional value added. So if you're just listening to the audio version of the podcast here, what we have is a storefront. This isn't technically an ad. I want to be clear. This is not an advertisement even. This is a promotion for their store. It's uh, the window signage at their store. It's really well done. And I would say I don't even think this is that sucky. I think it's quite honest, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely no nutritional (laughs) value. They're not pretending this is something it isn't. You know it's delicious. You know you want it. That's what they're saying, right? Yeah. And yet, they're not misleading you in any way. They're allowing you to make your own decision. Matt, I think I disagree with you. I don't think this... A, I don't think it's an ad at all. It's certainly not an ad. But I don't think it's that sucky either. I think it's sucky in the sense that it is, uh, you know, glamorizing these empty calories. It's almost, it reminds me of the restaurants that glamorize the cholesterol and the, the carbs and the sugars. Like I I forget what restaurant it is. I think there's one in LA here, but like the whole gimmick is it's a nurse waiting on you. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what's that? Dan? Yeah. They have like the heart attack burger and things like that. They play off of this unhealthiness Mm -hmm. to make it, um, to embrace it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with embracing things. Um, but, you know, they are essentially moralizing this to be good and to be like, yeah, you know, you want to just give in, eat okay. some sugar, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, you're right. It's not an ad as much as it is um, a promotion. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the deceptive piece behind this is it's glamorizing something that they know is going to probably do you harm. Yeah, and it's similar to heroin in many respects, right? Yeah. So like sugar in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in fact, uh, the funny thing is here, the the woman's like, she's all depressed on the the picture here because uh, she has to eat a salad and then she sees the sugar <laughs> in front of her. The irony is either one of those can inflame you. And, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, if you have some sort of you know inflammatory problems... And so either one of those could actually be problematic depending on who you are as a human being. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I see this and I'm not, a, I don't find it, a, this is why it's not sucking to me. I don't find it appealing at all. Mm-hmm. I, I just find it like, yeah, I know there's no nutritional value in it. Thanks for being honest. And actually, no, you're wrong. I don't want it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we live in a, a free country. If you want to 
eat a Twinkie diet. I mean, you could eat Twinkies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like that is the freedom that we have. So out of that, out of that respect, um, yeah, I mean, this, this ad is total or this promotion is totally okay. But yeah, it is, it is, it's just glamorizing something that I don't think should, you know, should be glamorized. It's a glamorized version of the drug dealer on the corner. Like, hey, you know, you want to, you know, you want this heroin. That's what it is. It's just a socially acceptable version of it. Right. Yeah. But it's also, you know, like the person with the salad who's kind of looking like all sad, like, oh, poor me. I gotta, (laughs) I gotta (laughs) eat the salad. salad. Yeah. It's totally what, what, what the culture does to us. It it takes all the virtues and it personifies them as the person you don't want to be. And then it takes all the unhealthy things and it, and it hires the best looking, coolest, most interesting actor to play that role. Right. You know, like like the person that's illiterate and irresponsible. Oh, let's hire the good looking person to be them so that we want to embody those qualities. And somebody, you know, God forbid, if someone's smart and responsible, goes to bed on time, eats healthy. They're always the person that's like, oh, hey, how do I make a friend? Um, how do I talk to a girl? They, like they just don't know anything practical. And it's like, look. Sometimes those qualities can come together. But you know what? Being smart, being well-read, being intelligent, going to bed early, eating healthy, that's cool, too. Give me some good-looking actors to play that. Yeah. Mm, Preach. Yes. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Let's do a home tour, y'all. Let's do it. It's time for the Photo Friday home tour. This is number 17 in our series. I think last week we did a little detour into our studio. We got into the out in the open rule. Uh, before that, we got into TK's home. Uh, I, th- I think we call it the throw pillow rule now. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have fewer than 17, and he has 17 throw pillow. I don't, I don't know where he sits on the couch exactly. <laughs> I, I just lay on top of it. You know that scene from Breaking Bad where the guy has all, all the money and he lays on top of the money and just does oh, the snow yeah. angel? That's, that's what I do with, with my throw, throw pillows. I just lay on top of them and... I'm just happy that you and Michelle are happy. Like that's that's all that matters to me, man. You got my back, man. Appreciate yeah, dude, it. I do. No, TK, I don't watch R-rated films. <laughs> now, Josh, are the feet in this picture for scale? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they're for OnlyFans. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so if you're uh, just listening to the audio version, there's a picture of my bedroom here, and um, on. I, I thought this was perfect for this episode in particular because I learned about PEMF. Pulse electromagnetic field therapy, mm. which is what Bex is laying on here in the picture. We have a massage table. Uh, my friend Randy Kay, who we talked about earlier during the the self healing self care uh, segment uh, question that we answered, Randy she recommended she's a massage therapist as well, and she recommended this particular massage table. Mm. We knew we wanted a nice table that we could have regularly. So in our bedroom. The only three things that you'll see there is the bed, which I'm laying on there. You can see my feet in the picture. And then there is Bex on this massage table, and she's laying on top of this thin strip. It's called a PEMF device. And what it does is it recreates the Earth's natural pulse electromagnetic frequencies. So Ryan, you've been on it before. Yeah. Uh, Danny and Amy came over and they were on it. And I mean, they freaked out. It does something to your body where it feels like it's recharging every cell in your body. I was shocked. I had no, I mean, I tried it out because you, you know, recommended it. I'm like, yeah, I'll give it a try. Uh But I was shocked how, 
yeah, I did feel different afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's placebo or not, you know, I mean, like it's, it, I definitely felt different, more energized for sure. There are some double blind placebo controlled studies on PEMF in general. Mm-hmm. Now, I w- want to say this as a caveat. I don't recommend you go out and get a PEMF device. Mm-hmm. It is probably the most expensive thing I have in my house. It's yeah. more expensive than my wife's car. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not saying go out and get one. However, if you're interested because you have some sort of chronic illness or you have a disease or you're just not feeling, if you're feeling lethargic all the time, there are places where you can go. There's one across the street from here. The first time I ever did PEMF is directly across the street from our studio. That's where they had this book just sitting there. Mm. And I started reading it as I was doing 20 minutes of PEMF and I felt how energized I was from it. And then I got a package. I started doing it regularly. It was much more affordable than buying a a PMF machine right off the bat. But then I decided I want to do this every day. And so I saved up some money. We bought the PEMF machine and it's helped immensely with my own healing. Mm -hmm. Now, it itself is not going to heal you, but I would say on the top five or six things that have helped me heal my chronic illness, this is probably number five or six. So it's Mm. not the first thing. Diet is by far the number one thing to stop the things that are so inflammatory. Grounding. We did a whole episode about grounding with Clint Ober. And in fact, we're all standing or sitting on grounding mats right now. I'm constantly getting out into the ocean or grounding regularly. But here in my bedroom, you'll see we have only three things there. It's a really big bedroom. There's the bed, there's the massage table, the PMF, and then we have this little sideboard next to Bex. It's not a sideboard, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't attack her or anything. But that's where we keep the components to the PEMF device. And um, that's all we have in there. And it's a very calming room. We yeah. go in there to sleep or to do PEMF. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like this little zen space that we have. And at first, even as one of the minimalists, I felt compelled to add, because this room is bigger than any bedroom I've ever had before. Mm-hmm. So I felt like adding more things to it. Oh, we should put like a little dresser right over here. We should put something. No, Josh, you're one of the minimalists. <laughs> Accept the space. Embrace the space. It's not empty. It's spacious. Mm. And so you see this room. It is spacious. And I want to keep it that way. The way that I could ruin this room is by putting more stuff in it. It's a room for healing, for recharging, so that when I leave the room, I can live my life as the best version of myself. Mm. Danny, if you want to hop on mic real quick, and maybe you can chat about your experience and Amy's experience with the PEMF. Hey, so you said grounding, nutrition, Christmas music, and what else? <laughs> <laughs> Oh shoot! No, that's pretty so, much it. So we always talk about uh, the bedroom being for two things, mm-hmm. and, and watching TV is not one of them. I say the bed is, but yes, oh no, the bedroom. bed. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. I was gonna say now the bedroom is for three. Actually, recharging, sleep, and the PEMF. So that could still be considered one thing. The yeah. recharging. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. It when I experienced experienced it, it felt like I unlocked another type of rest. Hmm. Or it unlocked that for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I remember I heard your footstep. You kind of walked around. I think Amy even walked in the front door and was like, oh, what's he doing? And uh, when, it, when it finished the... I'm not even sure how long I was on the table. I think it was, what, eight minutes? minutes? maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, I felt like I was there for 45 minutes. Yeah. Like it felt like you just... Yeah, just like supercharged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I do want to touch on your room. Because uh-huh. I'm, I'm excited because I know we took some photos and how to, for how to love. Yeah, 
And uh, I was looking through them the other day because I'm kind of searching and building the reels as we go. And I had to laugh because the photos, and they're not released yet, um, we used to were on the bed. I think you guys are just kind of laughing. Uh-huh. It looks like an ad. And I was like, you know, people build rooms to look like this for an ad, for a mattress ad or for something. And all we did was literally walk in your room and you guys plopped on the bed. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really cool because I'm like, oh, like, these ads, they tell a lie in most cases and the people don't actually, you know, live in those places. But I thought it was really unique that your room is your room and we didn't have to really prep anything. Maybe we straightened out a blanket, but mm. that's all we did. No, that's awesome. So I, I like that people are getting to peek at your room because I was like, this is, a, you know, seeing it in photos, I had, you know, the, the memories come back to me and I was like, you know, this is really cool. And then now Amy and I try to build it that way. We're trying to build our little half of our studio to kind of feel that way, very simple ad-like um, and try to live, you know, simply like that in a room. I think I think Josh has this approach with his spaces, with himself, with the studio. Um, I think you're always asking yourself, like, is this photo worthy? Mm. And uh, yeah, man, I think that's what helps you have such a great sense of style. Um, yeah, it's, it's something that I too... Um, uh, yeah, it's it's. I don't want to say I'm envious over, but I I definitely admire that that piece uh, that 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 sense that you have. Yeah. I find that aesthetics are really important to me, mm-hmm. but they're not the most important thing, and, I, and that that's what needs to be clear. And I think that's what Danny's talking about here is yes, there are companies who will affect what our bedroom looks like, but then it's chaos everywhere outside of the camera, right? Mm-hmm. And you see that on movie sets and everywhere else. And I remember when Danny first came on board here at the studio, he's like, I like that the studio looks camera ready, even off camera, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I used to do this back in the retail days as well. I'm sure you'll remember this, but even with our coffee shop, Bandit, the thing I'm always talking to the weavers about is like, you want your stock room to look customer facing as well, even yeah. if it's not, because it creates that calming enlivening environment that mm-hmm. you will now bring out to the areas that actually are customer facing. Oh yeah. And so I want to do that everywhere in my life. I'm constantly striving to have an aesthetically pleasing space because I think that helps eliminate a lot of the mental clutter if we ha- have less physical clutter all around us. Yeah. Beauty will save the world, man. <laughs> Beauty really is food for the soul. I heard somebody say that truth is easily ignored. Morality is easily dismissed. But beauty captivates the soul in a way from which there is no turning away. There's something about beauty that has a power to compel us. And the problem with society is not that we focus too much on beauty, but that we focus too much on the beauty that fades with time, the beauty that easily perishes. Mm. But there is a form of beauty captured by your sense of the aesthetic that lasts, that endures. And that kind of beauty, the contemplation of it, the creation of it can really heal the soul, man. Erwin Raphael McManus on the podcast, we did a episode with him about the genius of beauty. Mm. Mm. And he said that beauty is essential. And I find that with Mosaic, the the uh, organization, the church that he runs, is everything there is really beautiful. In fact, we went to a conference of theirs earlier and the attention to detail. But the question I asked him uh, was, hey, I've noticed that everything you do is beautiful. The art, there's attention to detail, but like it also amplifies the meaning. He said, yeah. He, he said, I, I think that 
a lot of people who will try to do the art thing, but there's no meaning behind it. And so it doesn't have a real purpose there, right? Mm -hmm. But if you can amplify your purpose, your meaning with art, that's what you want to do. Ah. It's not about just the art. It's about the message behind the art as well. And if you can marry the two, that's when aesthetics are really important. Rob Bell talks about how beauty is essential in a different way. Like if you look at a flower, it's beautiful because that's its function. It attracts the bees and it wouldn't attract them if it wasn't beautiful. So beauty is actually a part of the function. It improves the function. So it's not that that the form follows the function necessarily, but it is part of the function. Mm. For our added value segment this week, I was talking about this earlier, Ryan. Malabama, maybe you can get this pillow for me. Mm-hmm. So this is the Lumina, or yeah, Lumia Wellness Cervical Traction Wedge Pillow. Neck and shoulder relaxer, cervical spine c- correction, Hmm. chiropractic stretcher pillow. So oh, our wow. chiropractor recommended two of these, for, uh, two different ones. I tried both of them. This is the one that worked really well for me. I'm holding it up here. So I know Jordan has it on the screen, but that seems redundant at this point. <laughs> um, this is something I use daily. I use it about two to three times a day, ideally three times a day. When I wake up before I go to bed and one other time throughout the day, just for two minutes. In fact, I think the instructions say you work your way up, whatever, to five, 10 minutes. I find if I do it for a couple minutes a day, what happens is it starts to release all the tension in my shoulders. Wow. And, and I get real tense neck, like right here from typing all the time and writing. And I get tense in my neck. I get tense in this part of my neck on the side and in my shoulder, I get all this shoulder pain Mm. and this has helped alleviate a lot of that. Not by itself. I combine this with hanging. So last week we did the, the pull up bar as the added value. So I hang every day from that pull up bar. And then I'm also laying on this for two minutes at a time, two or three times a day. And it really relieves that tension. I feel, you know, when it's all tight and someone starts rubbing it, but this like loosens it up over two or three minutes if you want to give it more time. I will say, be cautious. You don't want to fall asleep on this thing. It would actually cause tremendous neck cramps if right. you did that. But you work your way up. I'm imagining so where that divot is, mm-hmm. the base of your neck goes there and you kind of let it hang? Or yeah, here. Your... You can put the camera on me real quick, Jordan. So yeah, it's just like this. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I'm laying back. Okay. You can see that? Yeah. Start stretching my neck out, and oh, it wow. feels so good. In fact, at That's the end cool. of this podcast, we'll set it on the on the carpet here, and you all can try it out as well. We'll put a link to this in mm. the show notes. If you have any sort of neck pain or shoulder pain, or know anyone in your life who has neck or shoulder pain, we'll put a link to that particular pillow in the show notes. Not an advertisement, obviously. It's just something that our chiropractor recommended to me and I have found some value in it. And that is our added value segment. That's the spirit of the added value segment. If something adds value to our lives, we want to share it with you as well. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Big thanks to our guest today, Dr. Jerry Tennant. His book is called Healing is Voltage. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. That is our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama Podcast, Sean, Jordan O'More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace.
Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. 